Passing along the Sea of Galilee, he, Jesus, saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boats mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can have a seat. All right. Good morning, church. All right. So... My name is Austin, as Pastor Josh just mentioned, and uh, if y'all missed last week, we recently started a new series in the Gospel of Mark called The King and the Cross. And uh, for me, I'm like super pumped about this. I love the Gospel of Mark. It never was my favorite gospel. And then um, I actually, uh, we took, when I was in seminary, we took a class on the Gospels, and I, I learned how to read Mark as literature, right? And so Mark, it's this historical narrative, and so it's true um, it's a true story. It's history, but it's also narrative. It's, it's beautifully and masterfully written. And what I love about narrative is that narratives are not just like lists of facts, right? They're not just like bulleted out information. Um, and I think a lot of times we read through the Gospels and we're looking for those bullet points or we're looking for those commands and we miss the story. But story is powerful, Story can shape us. And, and in narrative writing, the writer will actually use the story to communicate do, uh, truth like on a deeper level, right? And so like, I can tell you, man, uh, lying is wrong. I can say that. It's a true statement. It's a fact, right? Or I can tell you a story about a guy named James Gatz who made a ton of money doing illegal things and then built this whole lifestyle, rebranded himself, which is a lie, on the name Gatsby and filled this whole house with all these things and spun all these lies about this life. And then all of a sudden, this house of cards built of lies falls apart and he ends up face dead in the swimming pool, right? I can tell you that story and you leave that story going, oh man, like lying is wrong and I don't want to lie. I'm compelled not to lie. I see what it does. And in Mark, we have this beautiful historical narrative. It's a true story, but it's written in a way that is compelling. And it leaves us changed at the end, right? And in this narrative, this story that's being told, the kingdom of God has come. That is the story. Heaven has been torn open, and this cosmic king has descended to earth and establishing his rule and reign, pushing back the forces of darkness. And in Mark chapter 1, we are introduced to the king, right? We are introduced to the hero of the story. And all the way through from Mark chapter one through chapter eight, John Mark, he's the writer of this gospel. He wants to make it very clear that Jesus is the king, right? We're gonna see Jesus constantly pushing back the forces of darkness. And we're gonna see the kingdom of God advance in the world. And what I love about this story is that he invites us to be a part of it. This cosmic king, this ruler of all things, invites his followers to come and be a part of the work that he is doing in our world. And that's, that's what we will see today in our text, 
right? And so I've been around Christian circles for a while. I was raised in the church, kind of took a hard left, uh, got into this kind of crazy lifestyle that the Lord saved me from. Um, but one of the things I remember from being a kid in church was having people come up to me and be like, hey, Austin, what has God called you to do? I remember being like, I don't know, like, I hope it's watching cartoons or something. Like, that's basically all I do. So if it's not that, that's going to be a problem, you know? Like, we, this idea of what has God called you to do? I remember uh, becoming a brand new follower of Jesus, right? I was, I was 19, and I had this whole vision for my life that I realized wasn't compatible uh, with the way of Jesus. And so I didn't want that anymore. But I was racked with anxiety because I felt this pressure and this burden to know what is it that God has called me to do. I remember fast-forwarding, you know, you know, another probably five or six, seven years, I've been following Jesus for a while, being in small groups, hearing more seasoned saints saying things like, you know, I'm just kind of like in a holding pattern right now. I'm waiting to hear God's call on my life for this season. Maybe, uh, maybe you have had a calling assigned to you, right? Somebody says, this is your calling. I actually remember being a brand new follower of Jesus and everybody in their, everybody's ministry, I was called to it because, you know, there's this eager person who's willing to serve. Oh, you're called to my ministry. And you get in there and you're just like, I don't know if this is really what I'm wired for. Like, you know, unless I'm called to go to jail, I need to get out of middle school ministry because, like, I don't know if I can handle all these kids, you know? Like, this isn't going to work. Or maybe you're not a religious person at all. Maybe you've, you've never really been in religious environments, and uh, you, you find yourself just asking, what am I doing? Why am I here? What is my purpose, right? I think this is something that all people wrestle with. We want to know, what am I doing here? If you're, if you're a follower of Jesus, you say, God, why have you called me? What is my purpose? What do you want me to do? And today in our text, we're going to answer that question, right? We are going to examine the call of a disciple, the cost of the call, and the commission of the called. What is, what is the calling for a disciple of Jesus? What will this calling cost me? And what are called people commissioned to go and do? What is the call, what is the cost, and what is commission? And the first thing that we're going to examine is that a follower of Jesus, uh, the, the calling is the call of a king, and it's to come and follow. The call of the king is to come and follow. That is what we are called to do. And King Jesus calls us to follow him. That's what we see in verse 17. Verse 17, we have these guys, they're fishing in a boat, and Jesus says, come follow me. That's the extent of it. And we don't have to over, overcomplicate this idea of calling. What am I called to do? You're called to follow Jesus. And what I love about this call is that it's so different from uh, the other, like from, from what somebody might have experienced in this time, right? Back then, the, the predominant religious leaders were rabbis, and, and rabbis were teachers, and, and what Jesus is doing is he's distinguishing himself against a rabbi because back then a rabbi would have never like authoritatively said, come and follow me. But this is the call of a king. And, and Mark wants to make it really clear to us and his audience that Jesus is not just some rabbi. He's not just some moral teacher. He's not just a, a good person with wise advice. Jesus wants to make that very clear. And the problem is that most of us will never actually be able to follow Jesus because we look at him as a teacher. Somebody with wisdom who can give me good advice. But at the end of the day, if I don't like what Jesus says about my anger or about my lust or about my pride or my greed or my unforgiveness, my sexuality, I can just cancel him. He's just a teacher, right? Or, or, or like a teacher in school, I can kind of take the things that I like so yeah, I'll keep this 80%, but this 20%, I don't like. I'm not gonna do that. But following Jesus doesn't work that way, 
right? You cannot cancel a king. You don't argue with a king. And you cannot actually follow Jesus unless you submit your life to him as king. And Mark wants to make it very clear that the person calling us is a king. Jesus is a king, but he is a benevolent king. And his call is a call of kindness. His call is a relational call. He says, come, be with me, follow me. And this call echoes all the way back to Genesis, right? In the very beginning, we see that God created this perfect world, this world that had no sin and no violence and no, no shame, no anxiety, no fear, no natural disasters, no death. It was, it was just this perfect world, the kind of world that we all want to be a part of and that we all want to live in. And then in this perfect world is the crown of his creation. He created humans, right? God created a perfect world for us to enjoy. And even better, we were given the privilege of being in relationship with him, Humans had this deep and intimate relationship with God in this perfect world, and yet our first parents still rebelled, right? And when we're looking at Genesis, the creation narrative in Genesis 1 and 2, and when we couch it in this ancient Near Eastern context that it was written in, the way they would have read it 6,000 years ago, what we actually see is a king who's creating a kingdom that's starting in Eden, and he wants to push the boundaries of this kingdom throughout the world as his image bearers populate and uh, are fruitful and multiplying, right? Multiplying his image out there. He's a king who says, my, my throne is in heaven and the earth is my footstool and I will create ambassadors in my image who will come under my benevolent rule and they will partner with me in my rule of this world. But our first parents decided that they didn't want God as the standard setters of their life. They wanted to set their own standards. They wanted to be their own king. They didn't want to come under the rule of a good and benevolent king. And so they rebelled against them, thinking that they could do it better. And when they did, sin entered the world, right? Sin is this, this rebellion against God. And our first parents are guilty of it. We are guilty of it. We are all guilty of sin. And sin is when we are not honoring God in our affections, our actions, or our thoughts, right? When our Thoughts, actions, or affections are contrary to the nature and character of God. We are sinning. And here's the problem is that sin is not arbitrary, right? There's not some man sitting in the clouds making up this arbitrary list of rules saying that, oh, these people better follow this or they're going to burn. God is, like, like ontologically, at the very nature of who God is, he is perfect goodness. He is perfect love. He is the source of of all life. And sin is sin because it is contrary to the nature and character of God. Sin always brings pain, right? Sin brings mental, emotional, spiritual, physical death. And worst of all, sin destroys our relationship with God. It separates us from him. And so when our first parents rebelled against God, the whole created order was thrown into this tailspin. And the entire rest of the story of the Bible from Genesis 3 on is God undoing the evil that we did. God calling a people to himself saying, be with me, follow me, right? And all throughout the Old Testament, we see God's people coming up short. They're not able to be with God. Their sin separates them from God. And so all throughout the Old Testament, there's this hope, this longing for this messianic king who will unite God with his people. And now in the first chapter of Mark, we see that the king has come. God, the Son, condescended to human form, our eternal God, through whom the whole world was created, condescended to take on the form of his creation. And he did this not to rule tyrannically as like this mean dictator, 
but rather to bring reconciliation. He is going to bring people back to himself through his own self-sacrifice on the cross through all who believe. Our king is a king who does not cancel people who disagree with him. Our king dies for them and calls them to be with him. This is the call of Jesus. He says, come, follow me. He says, be with me in my kingdom. And that is what Jesus is calling us to do. All people, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, your purpose in life is to come and follow Jesus, to be with him. And as we follow Jesus, we submit to ourselves, to to his lordship in our life. We spend time with Jesus. It'll actually start to change us. It'll transform us. We start to become more like him. Um, I don't know if y'all watch the show, The Chosen. Anybody? Chosen fan? I'm a chosen dude. All right, I see y'all back there. That's right. So The Chosen, I feel like it's this show that does this, a great job showing what this looks like, right? The Chosen is this uh, show. It, it depicts the, the life and ministry of Jesus. And at least during the first two seasons, a big part of what the show is, is Jesus calling his disciples, right? And so he's calling these people and asking them to come and follow him. And the amazing thing is that as these people start to follow Jesus, we start to see racism being worked out of their life. Right? We start to see them becoming more compassionate. We see them becoming more patient. And, and the disciples, anytime they're in a scene with Jesus, they're just lingering on his words. Every single thing that he says, they're lingering on it. And then as soon as he leaves, right, they're just like, man, did you hear that? They're like talking about Jesus' words with one another. When Jesus starts talking, they get silent and they listen. And then they talk to each other about what he said and how they can live that out. And I watch that and I ask myself, like, is that what my life looks like right now? Is, is, am I following Jesus that way? Are you following Jesus that way? Is that what your life looks like? Do you linger on the words of Jesus? Do you talk about them with people in your community? Right, Brett, Brett and I, uh, we've been talking a lot about path groups recently. Brett is leading our church through what it looks like to be on the path of flourishing through path groups. That's a discipleship ministry that we have at Flourishing Grace here. And um, we've been talking about this a lot, going, man, what does it actually look like to follow Jesus in our culture today. And the thing that we keep coming to, the conclusion that we keep realizing, is that it looks the same as it did 2,000 years ago. Nothing has changed. It looks like praying. It looks like reading God's word. It looks like being in community. It looks like serving the poor and the marginalized. It looks like taking times of Sabbath and silence and solitude. That's what it looks like to follow Jesus. And the question is, are we doing that? Are we actually following Jesus? Is Jesus the king of your life, or do you only let him rule in the areas that you agree with him in? As we spend time with Jesus, we become transformed by Jesus. Our lives are going to come under his rule, and we'll actually experience the benefits of his kingdom. In the kingdom of God, there is joy, there is love, there is peace, there is hope, there is purpose, and there is meaning, right? Those are all byproducts of the kingdom of God in our lives. But the truth is that most of us, we want the kingdom without the king, Right? We want all the benefits without following. But it doesn't work that way. We can't do that. If you want the kingdom life, you have to follow the king. This is what every person was created for. For our purpose is to follow Jesus. Whether you're religious or not, that is what your purpose in life is to do. And so if you're not a religious person, you're wondering, what am I supposed to do with my life? The answer is follow Jesus. Spend time with him. Read his word. Get to know him. And if you are a Christian and you're wondering, what am I supposed to do? What is the call in my life? The answer is simple. Follow Jesus. That is what you're supposed to do. The call of the king is to come and follow. 
And that's the, that's the first truth that we sort of see emerging out of this text is that we are to come and follow Jesus. But what is the cost of that call? What will that call cost me? Well, the cost of the call is nothing and everything. The cost of the call to come and follow King Jesus is nothing, and yet at the same time, it is everything. And this truth, we see this truth all throughout Scripture, right? We could go all the way back to Genesis where God freely sacrifices something on behalf of Adam and Eve, how God shuts the door of Noah, how God calls Abraham regardless of what he did, right? And we see that explicitly in our text when Andrew and Peter and John and James, when they are called by Jesus, what did they do? What were they doing? They're fishing, right? They didn't do anything. This is what I love uh, about this story. They were working in their boat. Unlike a rabbinic student who would have come under the tutelage of a rabbi, they, they, they weren't evaluated. They weren't deemed worthy. They didn't have to pass a Torah exam. They didn't have to prove that they were good enough at obeying his laws. They didn't have to prove that they went to the temple to offer sacrifices or to pay their tithe. These were just fishermen in their boat, and they heard the call of Jesus and they simply responded to the call. There was no good work that caused them to receive this call. This call was a call of grace. And they responded in faith, and they began to follow Jesus. And what I love about our passage in 16 through 20, and this is what happens in narrative, right? Jesus gives this command, in four, or he gives this declaration, this proclamation. It's the first words of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. And he does it in verses 14 and 15. He says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe, right? That's 14 and 15. Now in 16 and 20, we see what that looks like. We see what it looks like to repent and believe because the entrance into the kingdom of God is repentance and belief. And so these, these words, repentance and belief, they're, they're this uh, grammatical construction called synthetic parallelism. Doesn't really matter. I just thought you might want to know that what I'm saying is actually grounded in something. Uh, but what that means is that you interpret them in light of something, right? You, you interpret them in light of one another. And so when you're reading the words interpret, or, uh, repent and believe, what, what Jesus is actually saying is what, the way we're supposed to interpret it is that as a person repents or, or turns and starts to follow Jesus, surrenders their life to God, they're doing that as they believe. They, they happen at the same time. Repentance and belief are two sides of the same coin. There's not a work involved. Because repentance, if you think about it, it's simply just, it's, it's changing directions. It's taking myself off of the throne of my life and placing Jesus on the throne of my life. That's what repentance is. It says, I will no longer be king of my life. I will submit my life to Jesus. And this is exactly what disciples did. They heard the call of Jesus. They had enough faith in him to leave their old way of life behind and to follow him. And they didn't even have a clear picture of who Jesus was yet, right? But they knew enough to know, to say, I'm gonna believe and I'm gonna follow. And so the cost of the call of the king is nothing because you cannot earn it. There's nothing that you can do to achieve it. You can only respond to his call in faith and receive it, right? We enter into Jesus's kingdom through grace and faith. It's free. And yet at the same time, it's going to cost us everything, right? It's gonna cost us everything because when we come and we follow Jesus, we surrender our entire life to him. In this account, we see Peter and Andrew, they're, they're, they're working, they're in, they're in their boat kind of fishing, Jesus calls them, they leave it all behind to come and follow. James and John, they're doing the same thing. And then Mark actually throws in a few other details, right, to kind of give us some more insight. Mark mentions that James and John are with their father Zebedee, and they're two hired workers. And so what Mark is showing us is that James and John are not only leaving their vocation, 
but they're also taking a step away from their family and from affluence because they, they had enough uh, affluence in their family to hire hired workers, and they just walked away from it all, right? And so this, not, this isn't a call to forsake our job, to quit our jobs and become monks and to leave our family forever. Throughout the Gospels, we'll see disciples are going to fish again. And, and in the very next scene in this, we actually see Jesus at Peter's mother-in-law's house. They're not, they're not, Jesus isn't saying, get rid of your job and get rid of your family. But this is here to teach us that the cost associated with following Jesus is everything. When we follow Jesus, we surrender everything over to him, and he becomes the most important things in our life, the most important thing in our life. It's a theme that we'll see all throughout the Gospel of Mark. And, and the idea uh, that Jesus is making, or the, the idea that making Jesus more important than our career, more important than our family, more important uh, than anything else, it can cause a little anxiety. It can cause a little tension, right? But that is the cost of the call. Jesus is saying, being with me, being like me, following me, pleasing me, serving me, knowing me, that must become the most supreme passion of your life if you're gonna follow me. Everything else in your life must be reoriented so that it maximizes your relationship with me. Everything else comes second. But the trap that a lot of us kind of fall into, right? We would never say this out loud or maybe we'd never even actually think it, but we, we start believing that we've put Jesus first in our life. But really what we're trying to do is to, to use him to get the things that we actually want, right? We'll say, Jesus, I love you. I'm following you. Why am I not getting that promotion, right? Or Jesus, I love you and I'm following you. Why haven't you given me that family that I've always wanted? And King Jesus says, man, uh, if you ever say, I'll follow you if, whatever is at the end of that if, that is your king, right? That is your real goal. That is your real end. And Jesus says, look, man, I am not a means to an end. You can't use me to get somewhere. I am the end. And as we go through Mark, we're going to see this theme uh, of counting the cost continually unfolding, following Jesus costs self-denial. Following Jesus costs surrendering autonomy. Following Jesus can cost social ostracization. I don't know if I'm saying that right. Um, following Jesus will be the direct cause of suffering in your life. It will be. That is a promise. But it is better to suffer with Jesus than to succeed without him. Right? And that sounds, that sounds crazy, but success without a relationship with Jesus, it, it's actually kind of disappointing. Like you, you hit this apex uh, of, of all of the goals that you've ever created and you finally get them, you know, and you're there and you've, you've achieved this thing and you're like the dog who, who caught the car. And you're like, what do I do, right? You start building rockets to fly in space because there's nothing else for you to do. It's empty. There might be a buzz for a minute, but then that buzz wears off. And if success without Jesus ends up being a letdown, then suffering without Jesus is devastating. It's devastating. But success with Jesus can actually be enjoyed because Jesus redefines success. Success with Jesus is more Jesus. And so if my chief end is more Jesus in my life and I get a promotion, I can actually enjoy that promotion because I wasn't relying on it to fulfill me. Suffering with Jesus can actually be better than success without him because suffering with Jesus is meaningful. 
There's purpose in it. And during these difficult times of suffering, you're actually gonna press into your relationship with Jesus because there's nowhere else to run it. It creates this relationship, this depth that can only be forged in fire, right? It's like this band of brothers type of relationship that when you walk out of this season of suffering, you leave going, man, I know that regardless of what I'm going through, Jesus has my back. I recently, I read this book by George MacDonald. Uh, George MacDonald, he was a, a writer. I think he was like late 19th century, um, died early, like 1900s. And he was a big influence for C.S. Lewis. He's a cool writer. But he writes this book uh, called The Princess and the Goblin, right? And I think this, there's this parts in these books that just so uh, clearly illustrate what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. But in this story, um, there's this girl, Irene. She's a princess. She lives in this castle. And what she doesn't know is that underneath her is this like vast system of caverns where goblins live, right? And so that's kind of the setting of the story. And in the story, she's in her castle early on, and she's kind of exploring all the different areas of the castle. And she climbs all the way up to this top tower, and she meets um, who the story calls her, her great, 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 there's a lot of greats, grandma, and we actually find out that this woman is a, more like a fairy godmother type of figure. Um, but this woman, she's super interesting because she's, she's kind of weird and she's kind of eccentric, but she's like beautiful and she's like captivating and she's alluring. And Irene is drawn to her. He wants to, she wants to be with this grandmother. And it's funny because after she meets the grandmother, uh, she, she comes back down, you know, goes on with her life and she can't find her again. And so she kind of chalks the whole thing up to a dream. But a few days later, Irene goes out of the castle and she's exploring and she has her first encounter with goblins. She doesn't know what to do. She actually has this little friend who comes. His name is Curdy. He helps save her life, gets her back to the castle. And the story goes on. Irene's looking for grandma, can't find her. And then there's this like one night where she's in her room and something happens. I think it was like a cat or something came in and she gets super freaked out and she like runs all the way out of the castle and she's in the forest and she's lost. And she can't get back. And so she looks back in the direction of the castle and she sees this light in the tower where her grandmother was. So she follows this light all the way back. She gets all the way to the top of the castle and she finds her grandma and she's like, Grandma, don't leave me. I don't ever want you to leave me again. What if something happens and I can't find you? And the grandmother says, hey, if you ever need to find me, here's a ring with this string attached to it. And this string is like invisible. It's so thin, it's like the the string of a spider's web, you can only feel it. But she's like, if you're ever worried, if you're ever lost, if you're ever afraid, follow this string and it will take you back to me. And so then more time goes on and the goblins actually attack the castle. And so now she's like really freaked out. She puts the string or the ring under her pillow. She starts following the string. It takes her out of the castle. It takes her into the woods. She's like kind of nervous because the woods are scary, but she trusts her grandma. She keeps going, she keeps going, she keeps going. She ends up at the mouth of a cave where the goblins live, and she's even more afraid, right? She's going, what is going on here? Uh, but she keeps going. And so she follows the string and follows the string, and she gets to this room in this cave that seems like a dead end. There's this big pile of rocks, and there's nowhere else to go. And so now she's freaked out, she's scared, she's questioning the decision that she made, and she tries to go back. She tries to feel that, screen, that string to go back, but it's not there. The string only works going forward. And so now she starts crying. She's sad and she's scared and she's confused and she feels betrayed. She can't understand why her grandmother would lead her to this dead end where she seemingly is going to die. But then she remembers that her grandma is good, that her grandma loves her, that her grandma wants what's best for her. And so she looks at the pile of rocks where this string is kind of stopped and she starts pulling them out. She's undoing the rocks, right? Her knuckles are all beat up and bloody and her hands are bleeding. She keeps going, she keeps going. And what she finds is that behind the rocks is Curdy. 
He was, he was captured by the goblins. And so this string led her right to him. And now they both follow the string. It takes them back out of the cave and they get back to the castle. And now they're about to see grandma. They're finally about to see grandma. And Irene's excited. She's been waiting to introduce grandma to Curdy. And they open the door and Curdy can't see her. She's invisible to him. He gets mad at her. Why did you lie to me? I was so excited about seeing this grandma. What is going on? And Irene can't, it doesn't make sense to her. She's right there. And Curdy storms off and leaves. And now Irene is forced with this choice. Do I go with my friend or do I stay with my grandma? And she stays and she's comforted by her grandma. And what I love about this is that it's, this story I feel like illustrates so well what it's like to follow Jesus, right? Belief in Jesus might be a little strange, it might feel odd, but he's attractive and he's alluring. And when you get to know him and you spend time with him, you want more of him, right? And, and sometimes following him doesn't make sense. Sometimes it's hard, sometimes it feels like suffering, but it's always worth it and there is purpose in it. Sometimes there's a reason for the rock pile. And sometimes, what seems so clear to us in the person of Jesus, something that we can see that makes perfect sense, we tell our friends and our family about them and they look at them and Jesus is invisible, right? And they, they, it doesn't make sense to them. It's like curdy, and we're forced with this choice. Do I choose to follow Jesus or do I choose to stay with my family? Sometimes it's hard to follow Jesus and sometimes it doesn't make sense and sometimes it's difficult. And even when it is hard and it doesn't make sense and we leave everything behind, to look forward to Jesus, it's worth it. Because here's the truth that when we trust in Jesus and we repent and we follow him, we actually come into his kingdom and we get the gift of life with him forever. We get eternal life, right? And I think about this in our, in our youth-obsessed culture where people have spent thousands of dollars to look young and to stay young, we actually have the gift of eternal life I love what Jim Elliott says. He's a missionary. Uh, he died in the mission field going to this tribe of cannibals and nobody else would go. And they were like, man, you're crazy. You're gonna lose your life. And Jim Elliott says, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Following Jesus will cost you nothing because it's a free gift of grace. It's not, you cannot earn your salvation, but following Jesus will cost you everything because you give your life and all that is in it to him, it costs you everything, but you get Jesus, and that is better than everything. And so the call of the king is to come and follow. The cost of the call is nothing and everything. And the last thing that we wanna see is what is the commission of the called? As followers of Jesus, what are we called? What is our commission? What are we supposed to do? And it's very clear. Jesus tells these fishermen, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. If you are a Christian, a key fundamental part of your faith is to share your faith with Jesus. The call of the commission is to share Jesus. You have been given this privilege to partner with King Jesus in his ministry of reconciliation throughout the world. You have that privilege, right? You have the privilege of helping somebody experience the same personal relationship with Jesus that you did, right? With the creator of the universe, you get to tell people about that. And I love the imagery that he uses here because he says, I'll make you fishers of men, right? What does a fisherman do? A fisherman catches a live fish, brings it up, and then the fish dies, and, and actually, the, the, the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah, he used that illustration of, as a fisher of men as like judgment. Like, go, go be a fisher of men and tell people that they're on the path to death. And Jesus is flipping this around. Jesus is saying, no, I want you to go take 
dead people, people who are dead in their sins, who are spiritually dead, share me with them and watch them come back to life. It's beautiful, right? And you have the privilege of sharing news with somebody that can transform their life now on earth and they can literally live eternally with you, with Jesus forever. I remember uh, when I was in Colorado, we kind of had this homeless outreach thing that we did. It was called the Acacia Project and started this little small group that we would pray together and the Lord just grew into this thing that served like hundreds of homeless people in our community. And the life transformation that we got to see during that period of time was incredible. Right? We saw people receive Christ. We saw them get off the streets. We, we had this like church van. We used to drive it downtown, load it up, bring people to church and watch them sit under the teaching of God's word and be transformed by it. People got baptized. People uh, had addictions broken. It was mind-blowing. And I remember there was this one guy, his name actually coincidentally was Mark. Um, he was just a regular guy. He struggled with substance abuse. Um, he lost his job. He ended up on the streets right? And, and uh, there was a woman in the ministry I named, uh, oh, her name doesn't matter, but uh, she, she served in, in the Acacia Project, and, uh, and, and week after week, she would see this guy, Mark, and she would, she would befriend him, or she befriended him, she built a relationship with him, and one day she actually shared the gospel with him, and Mark believed the gospel. He repented, he trusted in Christ, he actually submitted to a spiritual formation process, he was submitted, uh, uh, um, he, 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 yeah, he, went to, he submitted to a spiritual formation process. He was freed from substance abuse. He found a job. He found a home. He kept plugging into the life of the church. And he actually ended up marrying the same woman that shared the gospel with him. It was, it was like this beautiful transformation story. And then, and then their wedding was at the park that we ministered. And so we had all these people from church and from this woman's life and all of these people from the homeless community together, sharing a meal, watching this marriage. And it was like, it was the most beautiful depiction of the kingdom of God that I've seen in a, like, I don't know if I've seen a better one, where just all these different people of walks of, uh, from walks of life are united in this beautiful thing. They actually ended up leading the ministry for many years. We had this guy who was homeless, met Jesus, submitted to Jesus as king in his life, and ended up marrying the woman who shared the gospel and then leading that ministry, seeing other people come to faith. Church, this is the privilege that we have you have this incredible opportunity to share Jesus with people and be with them as they step into newness of life. But there's sometimes that sharing the gospel doesn't feel like a privilege, right? It feels like a, a have to instead of a get to. And I know for me personally, when I feel that way, when I feel obligated to share the gospel, not, not from a place of joy, it's because I wasn't doing the first two things that we talked about today. I wasn't actively following Jesus. I'm not lingering on his words. I'm not in a community of faith being sharpened and encouraged to live out my relationship with Jesus. Or I'm not putting Jesus first in my life. I'm letting my vocation or, or my family get in the way. And when we're not doing those things, sharing the gospel feels like a have to. It doesn't feel like a get to. But when we're delighting in Christ, when we're reading his word, lingering on the scriptures in a community of faith being spurred on, it's kind of hard not to share Jesus with others. Right? We share what we are delighted in. And, and it only feels like an obligation or like you have some sort of agenda if you're not actually finding delight in Jesus, when you're not actually following Jesus. And I know that there are some people who will say, man, like I am delighting in Jesus. I can honestly say that I'm delighting in Jesus, but it still feels weird and awkward. And that's, that's honest. There's a book out there. Uh, it's called Honest Evangelism by Rico Tice. He says that anytime we go and share our faith with somebody, there's this pain line that we're gonna have to cross, this, this line of like awkwardness. And, and it's always gonna be there. 
and we just need to anticipate it, and we need to step over it. And the more times that we step over that pain line, the less painful it becomes. It's kind of like jumping off the high dive, right? You kind of get up there, and you're like looking over, and it's kind of scary. But then like, once you do it, the rest is just easy. It just kind of, you just kind of fall, right? And, and, and that's what it's like. We, we're gonna cross this pain line. The rest of the conversation is gonna come easy. You just know that it's gonna be there. The beautiful thing is that we don't have to feel pressured to share the gospel. We don't have to be worried that we won't do it right. I love what Jesus or what Mark says in this text, that Jesus will make you become fishers of men. And so in the same way that our spiritual formation is a process, becoming fishers of men is a process. It's something that we have to do regularly and we get practice at and we become better at. And what's really comforting is that we, we've talked about the commission, right, of the called is to share Jesus. At the end of Matthew, Jesus gives the great commission. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore, an empowerment statement, go out and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the best part, he says, and surely I am with you until the end of the age. It's a process. Jesus doesn't flip a switch and make you become this perfect gospel sharer. It's a learning process that the more we do it, the easier it becomes, and we have the comfort and assurance of knowing that Jesus is there with us in that moment. This is why I get pumped about communities. I had to stop for a minute because I don't want to go off too much. But communities are these groups of people that gather in Davis County doing fun things that we would do no matter what. And we have the opportunity to invite people into them to experience the people of God, right? The hope is that you'll be able to build a relationship with those people and one day maybe be able to share the gospel, right? And then you can see this friend that you know and that you love step into newness of life. And so the commission is to share Jesus with others. This is our commission. We are commissioned to be fishers of people who share the gospel, not because you have to, but because you get to, right? Not because you have an agenda, but because you love them, not because you're obligated, but because you're overjoyed. You are overjoyed in the realization that you know the creator of the universe and that he has forgiven your sins and given you eternal life with him. You are overjoyed in that truth and you wanna share it. We get to be people who share Jesus' life-changing news. We get to see the kingdom of God come to this earth, and we get to partner with Jesus in the expansion of that kingdom. And so, church, let us be a people who do that. Let us be a people who follow Jesus, who respond to the call, making him the center of our life, and who share him with others. Is that something we can do? All right. All right, I'm gonna pray John is going to close us out in the time of music, and then we can go out living as kingdom ambassadors. Father, uh, we're thankful for this time. Uh, we're thankful for this opportunity to gather as the church, to sit under your word, to sing the gospel over one another, to be sharpened by your spirit. And we pray um, that it would all uh, culminate in your glory, that we would be a people who advance your kingdom through sharing the gospel with others, and that we would see uh, transformation in Davis County, God. That is our prayer. That is our desire. Uh, we love you and we trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.